everyone, and welcome to today's episode of the Wharton Fintech Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Zauk, and today I sit down with Jeff Seltzer, managing partner of Pierce Yates Ventures and active member and board member of the New York Angels. Pierce Yates provides early stage funding and advice to emerging companies with a focus on fintech and sports tech. He is on the boards of numerous startups and is a mentor at six accelerators around the world. Jeff is the former deputy chairman of CIBC's U.S. Investment Bank, COO of Adirondack Trading Partners at IPO, and was a managing director and co-founder of the Derivative Products Group at Lehman Brothers. Jeff is a proud Wharton alum and in 2019 received the Alumni Award of Merit in recognition of his lifelong commitment and service to Penn. Thank you, Jeff. In today's episode, Jeff and I cover his long road to investing and why it can be advantageous to do a stint in DC politics, New York Angels 101, including how they're structured, the companies they back, their investment process, and how you can get involved. The ups, downs, and many misunderstandings of angel investing Jeff wants to clear up. What founders and investors need to think about at the start of an angel round his must-read resources for new investors, and much, much more. I've linked all that we discuss in the episode description, including the New York Angels. Be sure to check it out. Let's get started. Hi, Jeff, and welcome to the Wharton FinTech Podcast. Always great to have an alum on the show. Good to see you, Ryan. So you've had quite the path since Penn, having a long career at Lehman Brothers and CIBC, COO of Adirondack Trading Partners, and now investing and working with fintech and sports tech through your own investing firm, Pierce Yates Ventures, and then multiple accelerators, and of course, the New York Angels. So quite a background, but can you maybe take us back to the start and just walk us through your beginnings from Penn and on, and what decisions you made that really led you to where you are today? Sure thing. And, and, and I'd like to say kudos to all of you for starting a fintech group at Wharton. I think fintech in, in my day was defined as having an HP 12C calculator. In fact, I don't even know if they were out then. It could have been just Rockwells. I think I had a Rockwell back there. But I loved it at Penn. I had a, a great time. I graduated in the, uh, in the late 70s. And at the time, the path for Wharton grads, Wharton undergraduates, was really you were looking at grad school or going to the big eight. And the, the big jobs, the Amazon and Google of its day were Procter & Gamble and Campbell's Soup for the marketing people. Those were the really very competitive uh, jobs to get coming out of school. And I was trying to figure it out. I loved economics, but kind of math got in the way. It was a time when econometrics was really coming in. And I knew to be a great economist, you were going to have to be a great mathematician. So that was out. I also had a kind of an inkling of I wanted to be a lawyer. But what I thought were what corporate lawyers did was really investment banking. So I eventually got there, but through a kind of different path. So I was trying to decide where to go to law school, which wound up to be Georgetown. And I had a couple of professors who, who advised me on that. One was uh, Aaron Katzenellenboyen, who taught Soviet economics, which was a thing at the time. Oh, my God. Um, at, at Wharton, they taught at, Soviet yeah, economics? Yeah, 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 Soviet economics. And uh, he was really great. He was a defector, very interesting story. He was a disciple of Kantorovich and uh, a great guy. And his thing, having left the Soviet Union, was that American students had great mobility. So don't stay in Philadelphia, get out of town. 
the other one was was Chris Mader, who was a management professor. He uh, took the management simulation game, which I think was the first simulated uh, game at the time. And his thing was, you're from New York. That's an easy place to figure out. It's all about money. You really need to go to Washington because that's where, you know, regulations, that's going to take more and more of a role in business and the like. So I followed his advice. I went to Georgetown. I joined the uh, the uh, George uh, Bush campaign. So that was uh, President 41. As he was trying to be the uh, be president, he was running against Reagan. Um, and I was in the policy development group there. He washed out, of course. And I was one of the few people who was then taken into the Reagan-Bush campaign. And I spent law school then working the campaign, which was fun. And campaigns are great because they're like the U.S. version of the Foreign Legion. You get all these diverse people. And, uh, and But the real important thing is you get to meet the junior folks who are going to be going into government. And they're the ones who you need to know because they know how to make things happen. You know, the, does the Secretary of State really know how to get some task done? You know, no, it's a Deputy Assistant Secretary of State. So I got to meet all those people, and it was great. And uh, a very senior administration official told me, if you want to stay here, we'll give you a job, but you should really go back to New York, learn a trade, learn a profession, and then come back. And uh, of course, we'd love to have you. And they were great because they really did keep to their word and they appointed me to a lot of advisory boards over the course of time. So it was great and it validated Professor Mato's theories. So I then wound up at a uh, law firm in New York. I wanted to be narrow. I wanted to be a securities lawyer. So that's what I did. I learned how to put together deals. And probably the most important thing was I learned how to deal with scoundrels. And we, uh, they were, we had a what lot do you of mean by that? Scoundrels. Well, it was the days of, of a lot of tax shelters and the like. So it was people pushing the envelope. So you had to learn how to say, how to say no and keep them as a client. So, Doesn't uh, sound too different from today, uh, if I'm being honest. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it, uh, it took me a little bit of time, but I finally was able to move out of the law firm. I first went into the general counsel's office at Lehman Brothers. That was my first way in. And uh, my first boss at Lehman gave me advice, which I think is the best advice I've ever, ever had. And it was, he told me, assume nothing, trust no one, not even me. Um, so I... Uh, it's the I, most like 80s Wall Street quote I've yeah, ever that heard. Was, yeah, so it, but it, it was great advice. And uh, I was assigned to a capital markets trading floor. A group of us left then to go to Canadian Imperial Bank of Commerce to build out the global derivatives business. While we were there, they were continuing to think through their U.S. strategy. Uh, they named my boss the chairman of the U.S. and a head of the U.S. region, and he dragged me along to build out the U.S. capabilities. So I became the deputy head of the region, deputy chairman. And then we were looking to, again, build out the capabilities. So I became now a little bit of an M&A banker, uh, and we bought Oppenheimer, which was a big deal for us. And uh, I then was in charge of the integration as well. So a lot of different hats uh, that was going on. So Jeff, after this time, you also started an exchange, worked with Wayne Gretzky at CIBC, which is a whole nother episode and a lot more. But let's jump kind of to the present. How did you get connected to, you know, fintech investing, the New York Angels, and of course, starting Pierce Yates Ventures? 
So uh, I, I was trying to think through some opportunities. Of course, I still love Wall Street and always consider myself a Wall Street guy. But I had two members of my class from Wharton who were members of New York Angels. And they said, why don't you come in and sit on this? It's a lot of fun. You like new businesses. It's great people. So that started me down a path of early stage investing. So Pierce Yates Ventures, a lot of people who are doing what I'm doing of kind of early stage investing, and they're doing it professionally. They set up an LLC to have their investments and then the other assorted things that come around that, advisor assignments, consulting. I spend a lot of time with my uh, financial advisors. So in a way, you could stretch and say that Pierce Yates is a very tiny family office with a venture specialization. You get board positions from your network and from deals and uh, a lot of mentoring and, and accelerators. I was a one-man band for a long time, and then someone uh, had referred in a deal, an esports deal, video gaming, and I had no idea really what that was. And my son, Ian, who's a, another Penn grad, he just returned to New York City having worked in streaming in Hollywood on the business side in the early days of streaming. So he came in, he was a big help on the deal, and he's been handling really a lot of the esports and sports side of our little business since, in addition to his own esports advisory business. So uh, then we get to New York Angels, and that's my origination source for most deals. So let's jump into the New York Angels. For our listeners that are not familiar, what is this organization and what exactly do they do? I think everyone can guess from the name that they do angel investments, but that's usually just one person. So how does the organization work? So it started originally as the New York New Media Society in the early thousands, the early aughts. And then they switched it to the, to the name New York Angels. And there were big names, who very big names, who were you know kind of like the pillars of the New York City tech ecosystem at the time. It was David Rose, who was the founder, Esther Dyson, who's still a member, Gideon Gartner, Scott Kernan, who is about.com, Alan Patrickoff, of course, one of the, the founders of Venture Capital. And then, uh, interestingly, Howard Morgan, who's a great guy. Howard was the uh, uh, founder of First Round Capital, who is near and dear to, to Philadelphia and, and Penn, and now the chairman of Capital B. And what's interesting about Howard is I actually had him as a Penn, as a Wharton professor. He taught decision sciences which was a little bit of coding and a little bit of the economics of information systems. And Howard was one of the rotating professors in. So as soon as I got to New York Angels, I said, Howard Morgan, I went over and I said, I had you. So, uh, and, and he's a great guy. Um, so New York Angels is a consortium of professional early stage investors. We have right now about 125 members. And for most members, this is their full-time job. This is what they do. Our members are serial entrepreneurs, technologists, bankers, lawyers, accountants, and we do have some corporate uh, members as well. We're one of the biggest and most active groups in the U.S., and we're clearly at the center of the New York City tech ecosystem. We invest in New York City industries, so fintech, media, entertainment, martech, adtech, fashion, food, enterprise software, hardware, digital health, all the things that you would think that New Yorkers would be interested in, we do. All angel groups have a different structures. So some of them are really are social clubs, dinner clubs, or lunch clubs, or breakfast clubs. Others of them meet quarterly. Others, uh, the members invest in a fund, and then that fund invests. 
but we are not that. We're a member-driven organization. We've had great leadership since founding. Our chairmen have been David Rose, Brian Cohn, and Mark Schneider, a very active and engaged board. We have a professional staff of three led by the wonderful Liz Lindsay, and she keeps the, uh, the trains running on time. Everything is done by committee, committee work. We have a transactions committee, a governance screening in Israel committee, a blockchain committee, and of course, a fintech committee. We don't have the resources as a VC firm does. So there really is no money for research reports, consultants, or big deal staff. We have interns through the Insight program, which you guys, I think you have it down at Wharton uh, too, where they call them future angels. So they help with the work, but it really is all the work is done by the members. And we have no bosses. Right. So in a venture firm, you have bosses, you have partners, you could scream and yell and get things done. But with us, it's a, you have to manage by ambiguous authority. It's a lot of cat herding. The members have different investing styles. Some are industry agnostic. Others are very specific. So as you said, I invest only in fintech and sports tech. And to kind of account for folks like me who are very sector specific, we actually have a diversification fund, which we spin up. So in New York Angels, it is collective screening, collective due diligence, but individual check writing. But we do have a fund, and that fund invests algorithmically. So if a certain number of New York Angels invest a certain amount in a deal, the fund will invest a certain amount. And that way we get exposure. It's kind of like a wisdom of crabs fund. So I get a little bit of piece of everything out there. So digital health, I know nothing or cybersecurity. I know nothing. At least I have a little piece of those deals. That's great, Jeff. What an amazing organization that I'm sure a lot of our listeners will be interested in. So now that we have, you know, a good understanding of the group, can you maybe provide us with a few, you know, general stats of the funds so we can benchmark it in our heads? So to give you a, a sense of New York Angels by metrics, so the average over the last three years. Um, so we've done about $12 million of investments a year. So if you add up all of those checks, you'll get to about $12 million a year. So that's the equivalent of about a $60 million VC fund. So it's of some size. We've done each year over the last three, we've done 17 new investments and 18 follow-ons averaging per year. We've been the lead investor about uh, on seven deals a year. 40% of our deals have been in med tech, health, and bio. We don't do pharma. It's too complicated. Enterprise software was about 20%. B2C products, about 15%. FinTech, 10%. And then media and marketing, around 5%. 37% of the companies that we uh, fund have female and minority founders. That's uh, awesome. That, that, and, that, and that's important to us. So we Certainly better than industry uh, average. We, we, we encourage everyone to apply to New York Angels. And, and certainly female minority founders are clearly welcome. So what does this application process look like? And then just kind of the quick overview from application through, you know, investment contract signing, yeah. what's the process? So people will apply through the New York Angels website. That will take them to Gust, which most people are familiar with, I think, in, in the VC world and founders world, that's the basic platform where Companies load their documents and their deal rooms. And that was founded by David Rose, the founder of New York Angels. And then, uh, so that pipe will come in. 
every month. And Liz will go through that and she'll look through, she'll kind of weed out the pizza parlors, the barbershops, the lifestyle businesses, the people coming in at $500 million valuations and she'll move them aside and come down then with a screening committee that we have. And then we'll post for members, maybe 50 deals. And members then have to vote on the deals. And generally, the top 10 or 12 deals, highest ranked deals, will get invited in for screening. So they're going to then come in for screening. If they get chosen, it'll be about a 10. It's all being done virtually now. And uh, it'll be about a 10-minute pitch, five minutes of questions, and then uh, five minutes, they'll leave then the room, and there'll be five minutes of internal discussion. We have an app that we go on and we rate the companies. So it's kind of like the feedback is real time. That's great. And then at the end of that session, we will see, uh, Liz will then bring up the screens and basically we need to have roughly seven people saying that they're willing to have another session with the company. That session we call discovery. And in the discovery sessions, those are usually 90 minute sessions. And uh, so basically just a much longer pitch. And at the end of that, we roughly need, again, about seven people saying that they're willing to take it to diligence and spend the time doing it. The amount of diligence that we put into a company, it depends upon whether we are leading the deal or not leading the deal. So if we're not leading the deal and someone has a term sheet already and comes in and says, we need an answer in two weeks or a month, then we'll be responsive to that or as responsive as we can be. We'll go through a diligence process. If we're leading the deal, then, of course, we take it much more seriously, and that's, that's a much bigger process and uh, involves deeper diligence, and that could take any amount of time. Usually, the deals that I'm dealing with, I would say from the time they come in till the time they get a term sheet is roughly two, two and a half months, which isn't bad in the world of uh, startups. Yeah. People apply through referrals, and then we'll get stuff referred to us by VCs and accelerators. One thing is New York Angels is a fantastic group of people and a wonderful network. So we have to, plenty of times there are people who are not doing the deal, but they're, they're there to help, to advise, to refer, to open up their network. So it really is a, a great group. But we try to get answers to founders as soon as possible. And on the pitch side, we usually get back to them within three days, whether they're going to make it to the next phase or not. Got it. So, you know, you're clearly dealing with a lot of founders and a lot of fellow angels every day, and you've been doing this for a long time. So there are many listeners of this podcast who are founders, you know, themselves seeking angel investments or professionals looking to angel invest themselves. You know, what deal terms should people specifically be looking out for? And, you know, what should they be aware of? So, I mean, terms, and when I was, you know, so kind of, I, I've been a deal guy, right, my whole life, really. And when you get into, when I started doing the venture stuff, it was like, whoa, what's this? You know, terms I've never heard before. Right, totally different. And, and a, a fellow member and, and good friend who is a Wharton MBA and a portfolio manager at a, a major fund and and he came in and like he is same thing like whoa what you know what is all this stuff 
So it definitely is a nomenclature that you have to learn. So I would say, you know, there are turn you got to worry about ratchets, anti-dilution, pro-rata rights, all these right. things that you may be giving away in the, in the future. So, you know, one thing that you need to have is a good lawyer, and there are, are good lawyers out there. One thing that I think that a lot of founders do is they think that if they hire a thousand dollar an hour lawyers from Wall Street, then they'll get funding quicker. And that's not the case. And in <laughs> fact, I think I would sit there and say, I'd be skeptical if you're paying a thousand dollars to a lawyer as if I could give you a great lawyer for a lot less than that who will get you through. So, but you need to have a, someone who really understands startups and will really be sympathetic to you and will be working with you to try to get a deal done. So, and when we try to get stuff done, we've, we've gone back and forth. We spent lots of time at New York Angel trying to come up with a model term sheet. And it used to be that, well, this is founder-friendly terms. No, this is investor-friendly terms. And we finally came up with, no, it should be terms that make everyone as best we can happy and get a deal done. So that's what we try to do is really to be as fair as we can to the founder, but making sure that the founder is going to have a future and he's going to be able to attract future rounds, right? Because as you, when the next VC comes in, they're going to be looking at what terms were done here and whether they can live with it or not live with it. So it, all that stuff matters. All those things matter. And I think for the founder, they need to understand what it is. And, and founders will tend to say, or a lot of people will tend to say, right? And that's a legal question, right? So you just brought up liquidation rights, which matter. So is liquidation rights a legal question or is it a business term, right? right. So maybe the lawyer has to explain it to you if you don't know what it is, but it's a business term. You have to decide, do I want it to be a participating preferred or do I want it to be non-participating and what is being there? So I can't tell one particular thing that, that trips up people or whatever it is. Certainly liquidation preferences are really there if things aren't so good, right? That's say. <laughs> You know, in a, in a good outcome, everyone has converted to common right. and, and everyone is smiling. So the liquidation preferences are only kicking in if things aren't as rosy as everyone had hoped it to be. Yeah, absolutely. And then, Jeff, you know, something that we've talked about before is, you know, mistakes that founders might make on picking advisors and directors for their board and how that relates to investments. Could you just expand on that a little bit for our audience? So, I mean, one thing that I would say, and people make this kind of mistake is directors serve a very particular function, right? It's corporate governance. And it's nice to have directors who also understand your business and industry and can also head. But those folks really should be on your advisory board. So what I see is mistakes that people make is they want people to become their, on their board of directors. And then if you're on the board of directors, you're going to be determining budgets, compensation, things like that. And, like, and, right. and the investor is clearly going to want a board seat. So there's going to be no pushback on of that. Course. But for someone who has industry expertise, you could make that person an advisor and put them on an advisory board and still get that, what you need them for, the network, 
or the contacts or the expertise without having them determining your budgets and compensation. So that comes up a fair amount. Yeah. And now I want to take it from the other side. So we've certainly talked a lot about founders, their pitfalls, challenges, options. Now, from the investor side, angel investing, as I mentioned, has just become red hot. And, you know, myself included has been involved with and is always looking for angel opportunities. Do you think, first of all, that this is wise for, you know, the everyday person to start being able to do? There's such a cry for investor accreditation laws to change because it's so, a pretty risky asset. So it's, it's risky. It's a liquid. Um, <laughs> right. And- you know, when I started doing this, the time to hold, time to exit was five to seven years. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, we, I have stuff in the portfolio, you know, 10 plus years. It takes a long time. You know, you read about these companies and you say, oh, they're a startup. They just started. But no, they've been around. Finally, by the time there's going to be an acquisition or an IPO, they've been around for a long time. So there's going to be a long hold. But what I advise everyone to read, both founders and investors, though for different reasons, is if you want to get a good answer to your question, they should read David Rose's book, which is The Gust Guide to Angel Investing, where David is a wonderful writer and he he sets out all of these things and why, if you're going to do this seriously and really look at it as part of your portfolio, then within the angel portfolio, you need to be diversified. You need to have, the academics will tell you that you probably need to have somewhere around 10 investments because you're going to have a bunch of losers, you're going to have a bunch of break-evens, you're going to have a bunch of maybe two Xs, and then you need to have that 10X. Right. And so when you go into every deal, you need to think that you're going to be getting a 10X, which is why valuation matters, particularly because... Most of these deals are not going to go IPO, right? They're going to be lucky if they're acquired. I think the statistics that may have changed over time, but the vast bulk of acquisitions are under $40 million. So if you're coming in at a $4 million valuation, you're hoping for a 10X, then you're there. But if you're now at a $15 million valuation, where are you going to be? So all of those economics matter. And David does a much better job than I will in explaining it. So I would would commend everyone to that. And also then structure matters, as we talked about before, is it going to be a price round? So you're going to get the most protection as an investor if it's a price round, if it's preferred stock. Convertible notes, they're very popular. They don't have all the protections that you find in price rounds and safes that are out there. I really don't know And a way to kind of see if you're good at it could be there's a bunch of crowdfunding platforms, which will give you the ability to write $5,000 checks instead of $25,000. Right. So if you're starting and thinking of of this may be fun or whatever it is, that that crowdfunding may be a way for you to check it out and see if it's something that you uh, are interested in. It's a hard thing when you're uh, an early stage investor to know if you're good at it because it's such right. a long time to hold. So the feedback loop is... Almost a decade sometimes. Yeah, it's a decade. And what happens in these angel groups is that you have all these people who come in and they're all enthusiastic and they want to start writing checks. And we caution against that. You know, you should write the checks when you're comfortable with the company. You shouldn't feel that you have to catch up. 
he'll get there. So you'll find that <laughs> it's kind of like the newbies are the ones who are writing the checks the quickest. And then the ones who are, have experience are, you know, still waiting to be validated. So, uh, I'm good at this or bad at this. Oh, I completely agree. And I'm seeing that right now. I mean, most of my peers now, late 20s, early 30s, mid 30s, everybody just wants to say that they're angel investing. And I mean, these are not common opportunities. You can't get onto your Robin Hood of Fidelity. So when that opportunity comes around, like you said, there's just this eagerness to jump in and you're willing to overlook, I think, a lot of diligence flaws or even the diligence process as a whole, just to be able to say that you have this skin in the game your angel investing. It's exciting, as you said. So Jeff, now that we're getting to the end of the episode, I want to ask you, you know, in your opinion, what are some of the best resources out there for young investors and founders to learn more, you know, any books to read, websites to follow, et cetera? Yeah, there's a, there's a couple of things, Ryan, I would recommend. Um, one is uh, David Rose, the founder of New York Angels. He has two books, The Startup Checklist, which as you would think is a book of checklists for startups. And that's good for, for both for angels so they could see or early stage investors to see what should the founders be worried about and for founders because they could go through and check the box. The other is the Gus Guide to Angel Investing because David lays out exactly um, what angel investors, he wrote that for angel investors, what they should be thinking about. But I tell founders to read that before they go to pitch, they should know what's going to be in the mind of what are the dynamics that investors are going to be thinking about. On the Angel Capital Association website, that's the ACA is the trade association for angel groups and the, under the membership directory will be a list of every member. So you'll be able to see angel groups all across the country. So that's helpful in, right? If you're in, let's say, Boca Raton, is there a angel group? That I could, <laughs> that's great. And it always makes sense to kind of pitch locally first. Mm-hmm. So that's something that you could look up. And then there is uh, Empire Startups, which is the New York fintech community. A fellow Wharton grad, uh, Satna Shah, who is a retail uh, early stage investor at Red Draft Advisors. If you go to her website, so that's Red Draft Advisors, she has a great section on how to find angel investors and also lists on how to find investors who like to fund women founders and diverse founders. So those would be, I think, helpful resources. So Jeff, this has been a great conversation. I think just in closing, if people want to get involved with the New York Angels, either as you know potential members, co-investors, or prospective companies, what are the best ways for them to get involved and get in touch with the program? So certainly you could go to newyorkangels.com and take a look at it. Anyone who I'm certainly happy anyone could get me through LinkedIn if they're interested in learning more, I could talk to them or they could talk to, to the executive director, Liz. And uh, if you want to be a member, there's an application process. You sit in a couple of meetings. And uh, as I say, we're, we're an active group of about 125 people. If people want to apply for funding to New York Angels, they could go to the website and follow the tabs to get them through and they'll apply through Gus. And, uh, you know, certainly if people are interested or, and certainly for any Wharton alum or panel alum, they could reach out directly and uh, I'm glad to take the time to talk to them. 
Awesome. And then one quick follow up on that. So I'm sure there will be a lot of people thinking, oh, I'd love to be a part of the New York Angels. This sounds great. Are there any kind of certain qualifications? Obviously, you need industry experience. I'm assuming you'd have to be an accredited investor. Are you looking at certain ages, backgrounds, skill sets? No, no. So so, uh, you have to be accredited. That's it. And we're looking for, we have a wide swath of people who are there, right? Wide swath of background. So, you know, it's just additive. So someone coming in, they, they shouldn't feel, oh, my background's a little odd or I had a different path or whatever it is. It's just everything adds to the mix. And the more diverse group that we have, the better off we are. So trying Absolutely. to think outside the box for us and trying to think in diverse ways. So that's very important to us. So. Mm-hmm. Don't be bashful. So Jeff, it was great to have you on today's episode of the Warren Fintech Podcast. And of course, always wonderful to welcome back an alum, especially for someone as passionate about Wharton as you are. And for those that can't see, Jeff is in a Wharton t-shirt right now. I'm waiting for the uh, for the video. I thought it was video. No, I'm only kidding. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, Jeff, thank you so much for coming on the show. We really appreciate having you on. Brian, thanks so much. And good luck to you and all your classmates. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton Fintech Podcast. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review. And if you're looking for more fintech content, subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, and Medium at Wharton Fintech. There you will find articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. I've linked our accounts in the episode description. I would also like to thank our editor, Rafael Ostria, for his incredible work on our episodes. Signing off, I'm your host, Ryan Zauck.